Welcome back to New View EDU, a podcast from the National Association of Independent Schools on what's next for school leaders. I'm Tim Fish, Chief Innovation Officer at NAIS. We are excited to share an archival episode from our sister NAIS podcast, Member Voices. In this episode from 2021, Noni Thomas Lopez, head of school at the Gordon School in East Providence, Rhode Island, shares her perspective on cultivating diverse and inclusive communities. Noni, welcome to Member Voices. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. My pleasure. Excited to have you. So let's go ahead and and just dive right in. We're talking about cultivating diverse and inclusive school communities. Can you share what steps you've taken to become a more diverse and inclusive school? I have the luck or blessing of coming into a community that really began the work a long time ago and began it on two levels. One, I think the leadership level was really important. The fact that this was coming up from the head of school and the board uh, and support was coming there. Resources were were put there. Um, and also that faculty were given the time and the development and, and invited into partnership uh, to do to do the work. So from the beginning, the work was not a, something that was done in, in assemblies, in after-school clubs, in elective fashion. Everyone from the board through uh, the faculty and staff and the parent body was invited into and expected to engage in the work. So I know at the, at the foundation of that and what I've worked to carry forward is the idea that no child should have to leave any parts of their identity at the door in order to be a part of our community. And only when children have a deep sense of belonging and connection to themselves and to others uh, in the building, that's when you uh, have the opportunity for really deep and important learning to happen. So there's a real academic benefit from having a school that has a deep sense of, of belonging uh, among its students, among its faculty and staff, among its, its parent body. Uh, so that's the, the work that was you know, done previous to my arrival and the work that I've worked very hard to carry forward uh, since I came. And we know, unfortunately, this work isn't always easy. What obstacles tend to arise when you're doing this work and and how have you navigated through them? Well, I think it's like an an onion. So you're peeling layers and layers and layers. So it's just not one thing. I do believe that looking at and dealing with race on a foundational level uh, in a school environment is key. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the history of our country and the history of race in this country. And so my personal belief is that if a school has the, the courage and will to dig into that conversation in all its complexity and difficulty, then it's going to be able to uh, effectively dive into conversations around gender, to dive into conversations around socioeconomic difference, et cetera. Going back to your question about what's the challenge about talking about race, it is such a personal uh, conversation and it's an emotional uh, one. And because it hits on very sacred parts of our identity, we have to have a real skill set around having the conversation. 
uh, in ways that are productive and in ways that are uh, respectful and in ways that uh, allow us to be vulnerable. And I think that we're at a time right now where uh, it's very hard to have vulnerable uh, personal conversations uh, about race. And so I think that Gordon has its history of having those conversations. It's uh, had a a real uh, deep commitment to starting those conversations early because we know children recognize race early, but doing them in ways that are, are really developmentally appropriate inviting families into that conversation and giving, again, teachers the training and the support to be able to facilitate, facilitate those conversations with some confidence. So what's been difficult uh, for us, I think, as I you know, go back to the onion, is just that there are just more and more things that we have to, to talk about. More folks come into our building wanting to talk about a gender in lots of different ways, wanting to uh, talk about a class, wanting to, uh, to talk about body image and how those all intersect. So in some ways you feel like you're having to learn while you're flying the plane. And I think that sometimes that can discourage schools from even getting started. And so the complexity, I think of the conversation, the way it shifts, the way that we as a country have been shifting our relationship with identity all of those things happen in real time in a school environment and you're expected to be ready for that. And so I think that's been and will continue to be the challenge of the work, but I think that's always been the challenge of the work and we shouldn't let that prevent us from, from digging in together. And we know that one place that uncomfortable conversations are being had or uncomfortable truths are being shared is social media right, with the Black at movement and LGBTQ at movement that are forcing many schools to to face these uncomfortable histories. Can you talk about how this provides an opportunity for for school leaders? I think there's always opportunity in discomfort. When something important has been cracked open, it's probably been sealed because of our discomfort, because of our fear, because we just don't know what to do, even if we want to do it. And so if something, you know, is cracked open like it was, then there's an opportunity to listen, to own what our mistakes have been, and to invite people into a different conversation. I think it's hard because a lot of uh, those students expressed what was happening uh, for them, for, for, for people that they know went to school with, is that when those accounts came up, it provided an opportunity to be heard in a very, very honest way. Nothing needed to be censored. Nothing needed to be smoothed over. And so that rawness, I think, was jarring. And uh, I think for the students uh, writing that or sharing their experiences, there's also an urgency, like things need to change now because they have been this way for so long. And that's so true. I have done my master's work and my doctoral work on looking at the experience of African-American students in particular in independent schools. And a lot of what's been shared is not different at all from what was shared by black students who first started attending independent schools in the 1960s and 70s. So that's really disheartening. 
uh, in many ways. And so when you see a moment where things could break open, it's a real opportunity to shift something that has been so difficult to shift for so many years. And on the other hand, it's not going to shift overnight. And so I think that's the challenge in particular for school leadership is to be able to move and to demonstrate real movement, not performative movement, but real movement, and also be communicating with folks like our alumni uh, to help them understand how all of this works. And so uh, I think it's a tough time for leaders in terms of feeling pressure uh, to, to shift, to change, and that's a good pressure. As I said, something needed to be cracked open, and I'm glad that it has. And their uh, leaders also have to deal with this sense of urgency, knowing that some things are going to take time, but it cannot take forever. It cannot take another 30, 40, 50 years for things to, to shift. So we as leaders really have to engage with each other to develop some strategies to move our communities forward in ways that the folks that have been suffering for so long can really feel now. And kind of piggybacking off of that, we know that social and political polarization is is also growing in many communities and many school communities. So maybe there are some similarities uh, with your previous answer, but I'm curious in your view, how can school leaders, you know, really bring people with, with different perspectives together, allow them to be vulnerable and allow them to express these different views? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. And I have thought a lot about that. So I don't have all of the, the answers by any, by any means. Sure. But I think one of the things that I think is important for communities to do is to create spaces for community members to share their stories. Dr. Howard Stevenson talks a lot about the power of storytelling as a healing element or healing approach to racial division, racial stress. And uh, I think that he's very much onto something. I think that communities have made some moves to create positions and create programs. And I applaud that and understand that. But I think foundationally, we need to, uh, as <laughs> Dr. Stevenson's brother, Brian Stevenson says, get proximate to one another. We need to understand who is sitting across the desk from us, who is sitting across the board table from us, who is sitting in the faculty workroom with us. And we need to understand each other's stories and histories and identities on a very personal level. Um, because once we get to know each other in that way, uh, then we're able to be vulnerable. We're able to establish some, uh, some common uh, goals or some common ground because we spend time with each other. We don't attack intentions. We dig even deeper into trying to understand where someone is coming from and how to bring them along. So I hope that our schools and our communities spend a lot of time creating spaces where people can really get to know one another. I think that sounds so basic. But I think that it is kind of the elemental piece, the core piece of how we move forward in this very, very divided environment that we're in right now. And I've often questioned how we might come back from it. And from a national perspective, from a global perspective, I don't know. But I do know from a very local 
uh, perspective and by local, I mean our school communities. There's work that we can do that I hope will spread out, you know, like ripples as our as our children go out, as our faculty go out, as our work goes out, um, that will do something to shift us from where we are right now. What do you think is your biggest challenge right now? You know, what what keeps you up at night? Is it this uh, issue of polarization or something else? I, I think that it is, is related to that, and it's it's, it's mis- misinformation. And I think that what uh, has me worried is that folks are just looking for, and I'm not saying anything new, but I think folks are, are, are looking for and are happy in echo chambers. And we're looking for the people who believe what we do. And I understand that. We want to know that we're in community for those of us who believe we're kind of on the, you know, on the right side of justice. Uh, we want to connect with those. We want to organize. We want to spread good information. We want to um, feel like we're telling the truth and we're educating. I mean, that's what schools are about. And to know that for some folks, there's no amount of evidence. There's no amount of, you know, there, there are no number of history books. There's no amount of conversation that is going to move someone from where they want to be because they simply want to stay there and that they're basing kind of their opinions on is not based on any kind of fact, that's really hard. You know, how do you get through that? And so that keeps me up at night, that there doesn't seem a way to break through uh, the misinformation, except, you know, my hope that this really intentional relationship building will move the dial, that as we get to know one another in very deep and intimate and thoughtful ways, that will break through that wall that seems to be um, up and impenetrable right now. But that's the, that's the thing. I don't know how we get through that misinformation, this desire to kind of stay in a place of this person, you know, believes what I believe. We can find information to help confirm that. And we're going to stay uh, in that place. That's hard. That's hard, especially being in a school environment, especially being someone who's an educator. That's tough. I'm wondering with, you know, that challenge and various other challenges, where do you turn to for inspiration? What what motivates you to keep moving forward? I have to tell you that my school community really uh, inspires me daily. And, you know, we've been uh, dealing, you know, like all schools with, with COVID, with the racial reckoning, with, you know, you know, economic uncertainty. And I've just found that day after day, this community stays focused on the right things. So I rarely find myself in conversation that I feel is about the politics of, uh, of a certain situation. I rarely feel like I'm dealing with drama. I'm, re- I'm dealing with real upset. I'm dealing with real hurt. I'm dealing with, with sticky, icky problems for sure. But I just find that people, even in uh, really dark moments, are focused on the right thing, which is each other. Um, they're focused on people. We're focused on the children. We're focused on our colleagues. We're focused on our families. 
you know, I guess I keep going back to this in our conversation is this connection to people, this deep and authentic uh, connection with each other, I feel is the only thing that's going to get us through. And it's the key is the thing that keeps me inspired. It's this idea that every year we're graduating another, you know, cohort of young people who believe that they can do better and not just do better in terms of the lives they create for themselves, which we certainly want, but do better in terms of the world that they are creating and the way that they're interacting with people and the questions they're asking. And so it's this uh, little engine (laughs) that I think about each year is the work we do with young people and that it's slow work, but it's uh, the most important work, the work that we do with our children. And so I'm just grateful every day for that opportunity. This is uh, this is my work and that I get to do it with other committed people and that we get to have an impact on people who I really believe will change the world for the better. And in your experience, are there other important ingredients? I know we've talked about a few, but any ingredients that we haven't mentioned that a school needs to really cultivate that sense of belonging and inclusivity? Well, I do. As I, as I said, I think the thoughtfulness about, around proximity is important in creating proximate moments for people in, in uh, school communities. I think that the work being supported at the board level, at the head level, is really key. I think that a deliberateness is important. And uh, as I said, I understand speed. I understand urgency. But I worry that urgency without the foundational building blocks will cause even more that harm uh, in our school communities. So an intentional, fierce, uh, but deliberate approach to this work, I think is important. And so there has to be, um, I think, really thoughtful communication to the community about what's happening and why. And there has to be a steadiness there. And I feel like if there is a wavering around that, that uh, the community wavers. So being thoughtful, uh, steady, and clear in our communications about what we're doing and why, if we're not doing something, uh, why that is. And trusting that our community can handle Uh, more of the truth than less. I think there has been a tradition in our schools of heads of school holding a lot close uh, to the vest, uh, maybe in an effort to protect the community from some difficult knowledge. But I think we can trust and should do the work of building that trust in our community so that they can handle and know that they can handle some tough information and inviting them into partnership to do the hard work. I did also want to talk about you and and your experience in general and your career path and and growth. So, did you always plan to be or want to be a, a head of school? Was this always part of the plan? No, it was not. I think it was probably a roller coaster ride to to headship. I didn't even know that I wanted to be in education. I got my first teaching job because I didn't really know what else to do with my English degree when I graduated uh, from college. And, you know, a few weeks into it, loved it and truly believe in folks who call teaching a vocation or calling. I felt immediately called into something uh, important and I'm grateful that I did. And because I was a Black student in a predominantly white independent school, that's where I graduated from high school, 
and went back to that school for my first teaching job, I immediately knew that in addition to teaching, I also wanted to lead in our schools. I wanted to be one of those folks who were around the table making decisions that would impact a student like me in that environment. And, you know, as you move up in leadership, you do hear folks, you know, saying you should be ahead of school or asking a question, do you want to be ahead of school? And I say that it was a roller coaster ride because maybe at the very beginning, I thought that that would be kind of my end, my end uh, path. But as you get closer to the job as an administrator and you understand more of what it's about and what it entails, that's when I thought it wasn't, it wasn't for me, especially as the, the job was uh, transforming more into more of a, a, a CEO uh, rather than kind of the head educator of, of, of the school. I dipped my toe in, in a few uh, searches, but um, when I made the decision to go full on and, and do a full search and look around the country, I really was looking for a place where I could be my full and authentic self because I thought that's how I can be the best leader I can. That's how I can be ahead of school in this all-encompassing job. I can only do it if I can be my true, my true self every day when I walk into the door. So uh, that's really was behind my search. And I felt like if I could find a school where I could do that, then I would be ahead of school. And if in my search, I could not find a school where I could do that, then it wasn't, it wasn't the role for me, but I was blessed to be able to find a Gordon school. And I feel that I'm able to do the job in all of its complexity <laughs> because um, I'm able to bring all of who I am into the space every day. And I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. And what do you feel like is the biggest difference from, you know, when you started in the role or you started that's ahead of school to now? Do you see a big difference over the past four years? Well, <laughs> I guess it's it, that's hard to answer too with, with COVID, but actually, no, I think that one of the things that I've tried to do in terms of leading through this particular crisis, and this is my first headship, so I don't really have, have much to compare it to, but I will say that what I've tried to help my community understand is that the, the things that the school uh, does well and has always done well we don't need to shift fundamentally who we are to navigate this, this crisis, even uh, one as, uh, as impactful and historic as this pandemic. That the things that have made Gordon, Gordon since 1910 are gonna be able, are, are the things that are gonna carry us through this crisis as well. And that's our community, our deep and intentional commitment to, to community. So being able to be steady in that message through this crisis, um, I think has been helpful to me and I, I hope uh, to, our, to our community. So I think that's an important you know, leadership lesson that I've learned that you have to be flexible and adaptable and kind of take change as the constant now, but there needs to be a core in terms of values and uh, in terms of relationships, in terms of mission uh, that you, don't, you do not um, depart from. Uh, during tough times. And I think it's the leader's job to, you know, steer that, that ship steadily uh, through, through the choppy waters. So that's brought some comfort through all of this, that 
the things that we know make good and strong leadership are the same, uh, even in times of, of uh, incredible crisis. Since I started in independent schools, how have I think I, I've seen things uh, shift? I think that I've just been able to, and I think schools have had to to do this as well, is really understand schools as both an educational enterprise and a business enterprise. And those two things don't have to be in conflict with one another. And I think that schools can be great examples of how to make sure that business enterprises are mission-driven enterprises, are ethical enterprises, are people-centered enterprises. And so from my time in the classroom to now my time uh, in the head's office, understanding uh, and learning how uh, the school is an organization that has to be thought about uh, from a business perspective, from finance to, to marketing, to thinking about enrollment management, to think about investments, to making sure that at the center of it all is, uh, are the people. And the work that you're trying to do in terms of forwarding the mission that ultimately is in service to uh, creating a better world. Uh, There's no other reason I would have chosen this path if I did not believe that the work that I was doing in partnership with others was um, affecting some kind of positive change in our world. So merging those two worlds um, or you know, this idea that they are, you know, two separate and very different worlds and shifting that over time and understanding that they can and need to work together, I think has been an important evolution for me. And what's been your greatest achievement so far in in your opinion of what are you most proud? Wow, that's a tough one. I'm proud of my my family (laughs) that I'd be able to create that has not been been easy. It's a it's a blended family, and the fact that I have such close relationships, you know, obviously with my husband, but also with my child and his children, is really sustaining and important. I'm proud of my friendships that are mostly with, but not all, but mostly with folks who are folks of color working in independent schools. Um, to be able to lean on them, to be inspired by them, has felt like an important achievement. Those Keeping those relationships um, strong takes work, and putting that work in has been a really joyful endeavor. And I'll end with this question. Where do you hope to grow or go from here? What's your vision five or 10 years out? I am really interested in looking at, I guess, the whole independent school system. So thinking from hiring to a placement process to the ways in which schools think about enrollment and outreach to, uh, to families, to children who would not have access. Uh, I think I'm just interested in thinking about the organism of independent schools and what are the ways that I and other committed folks can continue to shift it as an organism, not just as a school or a region, uh, in ways that feel really transformational. So that when we look at the body of the schools on a national level, that we can 
see and identify a shift from one place to the next. I don't know what that shift is. <laughs> I just, I know that there's a desire uh, for our schools to be, you know, uh, to use language from where we started this podcast, to be authentic places of belonging. How do we turn that tide on a national level? And how can I be a part of that, about, of that work? Be in partnership with others to be a part of that work. That's the seed that's just kind of planted in my head, and I have no idea <laughs> what that means, what it looks like, but I'm interested in taking that question on and thinking about that, what that could mean. Because the schools have been so, our schools have this very, you know, as a, as a, as a national, you know, body, the school, oh, we still have a very interesting, you know, history. Many of our schools you know, were created as places of exclusion and they've grown and changed so much. And there's so many different kinds of schools now. So it would seem almost impossible to think about a shift on a national level in, in how we work and who we serve and who has access and the impact we have. But I think that there's, you know, more power in the collective. So what are the ways that we can collectively uh, create a positive a change in these schools that so many of us have benefited from, but still have some systemic things that really we have to take a, a good, hard, hard look at. Yeah, I'm interested in, in that, but, you know, I think like a lot of things, no idea you know, what the end goal looks like, but very interested in thinking about that with some other good, good folks. Well, I do feel like we've we've come a little full circle, so I feel like that's a good place to to end. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. I really appreciate you asking. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Member Voices, along with some related NAIS resources from each episode, by visiting nais.org slash membervoices. You can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes, or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to automatically receive a new podcast episode in your feed each month.